John 10, 1 through 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door, enters by the door, is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And our sermon text this morning is Psalms 113, verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, brother. Amen. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you, music team. Thank you, church, for your good singing. Man, love singing with you. So thankful to be here today and so thankful for your presence today. Um, and I thank you for your prayers for me and, uh, and asking uh, for guidance in the pulpit ministry in the coming months. And uh, I, I can't leave this series. I just can't leave this series. So I'm, I'm going to put off our book study till January because I think, uh, if I'm thinking our series of the names of Jesus which should end around Advent. So that would be perfect. And uh, Lord willing, and then we'll uh, do our annual Advent series of messages. And then in January, we'll do a book study. And I'll reveal that to you later. Okay, keep praying, though. I've got two books I'm, I'm thinking about. So keep praying along those lines for me. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. I love my church family. And thank you for the encouraging words that I've received uh, in recent days. And, uh, um, and uh, honing words, sharpening words, just thank you. Thank you. You're, what a blessing you are. Um, last week we looked at the God-man, Jesus the God-man, not a term you'll find in Scripture, but like Trinity, you won't find it in Scripture either, but it's still a biblical truth. Jesus was the God-man. He was God incarnate, the, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And I want to review that real quick by reading what our confession, the 1689, says about that. I wanted to read this last week, but time, time, time got out, away from us. So I want to review last week's message by reading what those who have gone before us wrote about the God-man in chapter 8 of the 1689 confession, paragraph 2. The Son of God... The second person of the Holy Trinity is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. When the fullness of time came, He took upon Himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus, he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person, this Jesus, is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ the only mediator between God and humanity. Boy, they said it well. 
They said it well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus, the God-man. Truly God and truly man, but one Christ, sent by the Father to save us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus. We already cannot wait to commune with him in a spiritual sense at this table this morning. Father, I pray that you would give us ears now to hear what you want to say to us as we behold your Son by studying and pondering together the names that you have given him in your precious word. Give us ears to hear, hearts to embrace, spiritual eyes to behold the wonder of Jesus, the God-man. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together here today be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All righty. In our sermon text that we read, springboard text, okay, we won't stay in Psalm 113. Got several texts to look at this morning. But our springboard text, Psalm 113, 1-3, we, we saw the phrase, the name of the Lord, three times. And you notice Lord is in all caps, meaning that's the, the translators, that they're interpreting the name Yahweh. So literally, it's the name of Yahweh, okay? The name that God gave to Moses for himself at the burning bush encounter. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite commentators uh, and pastors, uh, writes uh, this about that. In the case of God, the name of the Lord, the phrase, the name of the Lord, is all important. For it has to do with the revelation of who God is. In other words, it is not just any God we are to worship. We are to praise the one true Lord, all caps, Yahweh who has revealed himself in creation, on Sinai, and more recently in the person of his only son, Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, God has revealed himself in creation. Uh, he's revealed himself through the prophets, okay? But Hebrews 1 tells us in these final days... He has revealed himself to us in his son. In other words, God's final word about himself to the world is found in the person of Jesus. So if we're going to understand fully, well, not fully on this planet, but more or closer to fullness, if we're going to understand the phrase, the name of the Lord, we've got to know Jesus. We've got to understand who Jesus is. Hebrews 1-2 says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So Jesus shows us who God is. Therefore, the various names of Jesus tell us more about the profound depths of the phrase, the name of Yahweh. Are you with me? To say it another way, by studying the names of Jesus, who is Yahweh in the flesh, the God-man that we talked about last week, we learn more and more about who Yahweh is which leads us to do what Psalm 113, the first three verses, tell us to do. It leads us to praise the name of the Lord. Okay? So my prayer for us this morning, when we walk out those doors at around 1230, 1 o'clock, whatever, we will know a little bit more about what the phrase the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh means. Because in that phrase is packed everything about God. Which we'll never get in this life 
we'll never be able to fully take all that in. But one day, when we see him, we will know as we have been known. And how does God know us? Perfectly. There's nothing about us that God does not know. Everything about us. And the scriptures tell us one day we will know like that. Okay. So this is why we're studying the names of Jesus. And why I don't want to leave it and wait till next summer to pick it back up. We're going to get to Z. Yeah. Can't wait to see what Z is, can you? Okay. Okay. We're going to get there, Lord willing. If I'm still breathing, can still stand, we'll get there. And, uh, and that's why we're studying the name of Jesus, to know him better. And in knowing Jesus better, we know the Father better. We know Yahweh better because Jesus said, whoever has seen me, what? Has seen the Father. John 14, 9. And as we behold Jesus in his scriptural names, we are in a very real sense beholding the invisible God because Hebrews 1, 3 says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. And as Paul said in Colossians 1, 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible creator and sustainer of all things, the almighty Yahweh. And you ignore this person, Jesus, at your own peril. Please understand that, dear lost friend, if you're here today. Please understand that. So as we press on in this study, hear the exhortation from our good friend Charles Spurgeon. We quote him a lot here. Yeah, he's one of us, good old Reformed Baptist, okay? Hear his exhortation. Quote, do not tolerate small faults of the Lord Jesus. End quote. Do not, beloved, Hear that. Do not, in your own mind, do not tolerate them. Do not tolerate small faults of the Lord Jesus. For he is worthy. He is worthy of the biggest thoughts that our minds can, can muster up about him. Because he reveals to us the one who created us. The one who created all things. The one who gave breath to our physical lungs and then breath to our dead hearts and gave us true life through the perfect life and atoning death of his son that we will remember once again this Sunday. Do not tolerate, brother and sister, do not tolerate small thoughts of our Lord Jesus. So let's press on with the realization that much, much more could be said about each one of these six names. Yes, six. I'm shooting for six. Might not get to six, okay? But I'm shooting for six names today, okay? But, and because I want to try to get six, we, are, we know of much, much more could be said about each one. Each one could be an entire sermon, okay? But we're going to try to move along. We're going to try to get um, uh, two letters today, H and I. So more names of Jesus. Here we go. First one, we sang a lot of songs today about holiness and about J the holiness of God. And that's one of his names we see in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Our key verse is verse 69, but we want to kind of get some context here. John chapter 6, man, is one of those key chapters. A lot going on here. Jesus begins to get very pointed with the crowds about who he is and what their response to him needs to be. This is one of the critical chapters in all of Scripture. So in John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking very directly Here's, here's some examples of his directness. In verse 26, 
because he knows their heart, because he knows them completely, he just plain out tells them, basically, you're here because you just want more free food. You know, he just fed thousands, you know, and he said, you're here because you, you filled your bellies and you want more free food. And he just tells them that right up front. In verse 35, comparing himself to God's provision of manna in the wilderness in the Old Testament days, he tells them, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of I'm the true bread. In verse 44, uh oh, here we go. No one comes to me. No one. Universal negative in the Greek. No one, not a single person. No one comes to me unless the Father does something first. Unless the Father draws him. Uh oh, you mean we don't call the shots in our salvation? You, you mean we don't do that last 1%? Nope, nope. This begins to ruffle their feathers. As we're going to see toward the end of the chapter, this is, these are hard sayings. Who can, who can accept this? Who can, who can talk? A better, maybe, one commentator pointed out, a better translation might be, who can tolerate this? It's not that they couldn't understand it. Anybody can understand nobody comes to the Father, to Jesus unless the Father draws him. That's not hard to understand, those words. But many, they can't tolerate that. Who can tolerate this? Surely we're the captain of our fate and the master of our soul. Surely. Then in verse 53 and 54, more direct speaking, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Wow, what does that mean? Now, he's not talking about the Lord's Supper, although you can make a connection, but he's not talking about that for several reasons. Number one, the Lord's Supper hasn't been instituted yet. Uh, he's speaking to a largely unregenerate crowd, so he's speaking to unsaved people. Okay, so this is a call to salvation because the audience was mostly unsaved. Verse 57 kind of points to that when he says, whoever feeds on me will live spiritually, will live, spiritually live because of me. So eating my flesh and drinking my blood refers to a full and total commitment to Jesus. Full and total, everything. Receiving him without reservation. Receiving him lock, stock, and barrel everything that he is and everything that he says he is because everything that he says he is is everything that he is. Another way of looking at it, Jesus must be as real to us and as normal to us and as necessary to us as eating and drinking. Just like we need food and water to live physically, we need Jesus to live spiritually. You must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Full and total commitment. And then in verse 64, man, again, very pointed, very direct. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. Not very, not real winsome he says some of you are not believers some of you some of you are not believers again he knows people through and through he knows you today he knows whether you believe or not verse 65 and the reason you're not believers he reiterates what he has already set forth in verse 44 he says the reason you're not believers it's because the Father has not granted for you to come to me. So, we got Jesus speaking very directly here in John chapter 6. In verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many of his disciples. So, there we see an instance where the word disciple doesn't always mean a true believer. These were the fake disciples. Many, many of these people who had formerly said they were disciples, they, they couldn't, 
they couldn't take this directness. They couldn't take this teaching. And so they left him and no longer walked with him. So after this, these, the speech of Jesus in John 6, many uh, disciples hit the doors. And I love what Boyce says here in his commentary on John. He, he writes about this section of Scripture, quote, It is interesting as an insight into the problems of our own times that in answering those who were in conflict over his teaching, Jesus did not try to tone down the teaching to make it more palatable. If anything, he did the opposite. We see he's, he doubles down in verse 65 on the uh, teaching of verse 44. It would seem then, Boyce continues, to make a conclusion that according to Jesus, according to Jesus, truth concerning doctrine leading to a genuine peace rather than peace at the expense of doctrine was to prevail. Listen, peace without truth is no peace. Peace without doctrine is no true peace. I remember being in a former church, and uh, the, church, the, the leaders, many years ago, many, many years ago, the leaders refused, refused to adopt or write a confession of faith. And the reason was that Confessions of faith and creeds put up fences that keep, people, that keep people out. And my response to them at that point, I was just a young guy, I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but I did know this. Fences also keep out wolves. Fences are good. What kind of unity is it if everybody just believes what they want to believe? Our unity and our peace is around truth, the truth of this book. Amen. So let's always remember that and never forget that. So back to the text. The phony disciples bail, and Jesus turns to the twelve. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? As usual, Peter speaks up and by God's grace knocks it out of the park, which didn't always happen with Peter, right? Verses 68 and 69, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter gives Jesus this name. He probably recalled it from his reading of the, of the existing scriptures at the time, the, the Old Testament. Dear beloved, dear church family, please don't miss what's happening here in this text. Jesus has drawn a line in the sand. A very clear line. No waffling on doctrine. And Peter and 10 of the other 11, excluding Judas, got on the right side of the line. They lined up with the Holy One of God. And my question to you today is, 
Where are you? Where are you? The question that Jesus asked those guys 2,000 years ago ranks up there with one of the most important questions in the history of mankind. Do you want to leave also? Because I believe. Take it, leave it, flush it, or chunk it, okay? I believe we are living in a day in which many of us here are going to have a line in the sand moment. And it's probably going to come sooner rather than later. Jesus or the world. Jesus or comfort. Jesus or popularity. Jesus or cancellation on social media. Maybe even Jesus or job. The Bible's teachings or the world's indoctrination. What God says or what man says. God's view of marriage or Satan's view of marriage. God's declaration about sexuality or Satan's view of sexuality. You may be asked one day, do you agree that a man can become a woman by saying he's a woman. What will be your response? Please think these things through. I'm begging you. Think them through. And I ask you to do this. I ask you to do this. If Jesus was asked that question, what would Jesus say? Would Jesus use someone's preferred pronouns that didn't match up with the sex that God created them? What would Jesus do? That was a popular movement, right, back in the 80s. What would Jesus do? These questions aren't far-fetched. And they may be in your near future. And dear church family, you need to be ready. Do you want to go away as well? Many will. And many have. But, but you know what? They give themselves way too much credit because the ones that have never belonged to Jesus. You don't get saved by Jesus and then one day decide, oh, I don't want to be saved anymore. Amen. That doesn't work. That's not what the Bible says. But please know this. If you choose to walk away, if you choose to continue to reject Jesus, just be sure, please, be sure you know who you are rejecting. You are rejecting the Holy One of God. You are rejecting the only one qualified to pay for your sins. Because the sacrificial substitute 
had to be spotless. He had to be perfect. He had to be holy. And Jesus is the only one who fits the bill. One of the thieves next to Jesus at Calvary recognized this. Luke 23, 41. This man has done nothing wrong. Even, listen, even demons know this. Mark 1. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So, the person who walks away from Jesus walks away still in their sin. They reject the Holy One, the only one qualified to pay for their sin. And they remain unforgiven. They reject Christ and they remain condemned. Is that worth not hurting someone's feelings? Only the Holy One of God can pay their debt. And they walk away from that. Oh, how we needed the Holy One to take care of our unholiness, to die on the cross as the spotless sacrifice, the unblemished Lamb of God, and then to rise from the dead and send His Holy Spirit to take up residence in our life and make us like Him Make us holy ever increasingly in the process that the Bible calls sanctification. Bless his holy name. Please, please. When Jesus comes to you and says, do you want to go away too? I pray that you'll respond properly. For the sake of your soul. Much more could be said. Next one is in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. The heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. When I go back to uh, Psalm 2, Psalm 2 speaks clearly of this, of the rebellion of the rulers of the world and the rebellion of the human heart and uh, against the coming Messiah and the Father's sovereign decree to give him full and final dominion over them. So let's go back to Psalm 2 and read about this heir of all things. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's exactly what we're seeing today, right? I mean, I, I don't need to unpack that, right? That's exactly what we're seeing today. The kings of the earth, the, the, the elite of the earth, the, the leaders of the world are, have set themselves and the rulers have taken counsel together against the Lord and everything he teaches and everything he shows us. He, against everything, pretty much. And against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Spurgeon said of these first three verses, he said, we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of the human nature against the Christ of God. 
Exactly right. Exactly right. Verse 4. He who sits, look, look at God's response to this. He who sits, sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's king Jesus. King Jesus. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. There it is. The heir of all things. He will inherit all things. And the ends of the earth, everything, ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Note, note the plea here. You know, it ends, it ends, I mean, it begins again, like Jesus would in, in John 6, very straightforwardly. The, the rulers of the world hate the things of God. But God's just laughing at them, and he holds them in derision. But look how it ends. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Boyce puts it like this as he compares the final three verses of this psalm to the, to the wooing voice of the Holy Spirit. What does this gentle, loving, and tender voice call on these rebellious human beings to do? A number of things. To be wise, to be warned, to serve the Lord with fear, and to rejoice with tri trembling. But chiefly, they are to kiss the Son in grateful, loving submission. Have you done that? If not, i got good news for you. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day of salvation. Kiss the Son. Bow the knee. Confess Him as Lord. He has the words of eternal life. Where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to go for the words of eternal life? We'll conclude this point with Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, him being Jesus. By Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. For him. So Jesus is not only the agent of creation, but he is also the goal of creation. Everything was created for him. Everything, everyone will return to him, either to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest, or depart from me, I never knew you. So which will it be? Have you kissed the sun? Today's the day. If not, today's the day. Number three, Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body. Head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 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 That pretty much lines up really well with the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God should be preeminent, right? Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of the universal church. He is the head of this local church. Sadly, it doesn't look like he's the head of a lot of local churches in our country. 
any local church that denies the lordship of Jesus on any clear biblical issue, you know what they are, does not have Jesus as its head, does not have Jesus as its Lord, does not have Jesus as its leader, because Jesus is not the one they're listening to on issues like abortion and homosexuality and marriage and things. No, plain and simple. Plain and simple. I don't care how loving or kind or tolerant or diverse or welcoming and all the buzzwords they claim to be, Jesus is not their head if they're not lined up with what he teaches. Why is it unloving to say that? <laughs> okay, never mind. On another note, looking at it from the point of view of the individual, many professing believers, they recognize the headship of Jesus, but it's a distorted view. It's a distorted in at least two ways. Some professing Christians have a disembodied Jesus. All head, no body. The Lone Rangers. Their motto is, it's just me and Jesus. Just me and Jesus. I don't need anyone else. Their favorite hymn is, I walk in the garden alone. Disembodied Jesus. Them and Jesus. At home, on the internet, watching their internet preachers. Okay? Disembodied Jesus. Secondly, then they have what we've called, I pointed that out before, many have a, what I call a bobblehead Jesus. Bobble, you know what a bobble, the bobblehead, these little figures you get, and the body's real little, and the head's real big, and the head kind of wobbles around, okay? Bobblehead Jesus, mostly head, very little body. They recognize the headship of Jesus, okay, good, check. They confess that he's Lord, but they just don't think his body is very important. You know, they, they, they never commit to a body, they never join a church, you know, uh, Sunday morning only, they have a bobblehead Jesus. Peripheral people, they have a bobblehead Jesus. Uh, cliquish churchgoers have a bobblehead Jesus. Uh, there will be usually little diversity among the folks that they hang out with, which is totally unlike the church and totally unlike our future home, heaven. Heaven's going to have a lot of different people in it. And it's probably going to be a lot of people that you didn't think you would see there. Okay, so let's get used to that now by realizing the importance of one another, the importance of body life. We're cranking up small groups again, amen, the importance of being together, okay? Ponder this with me. The fact that Jesus is the head of the body makes the body very important. Okay, think about that. The fact that Jesus is the head of something makes that something very important, wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think? In at least two ways. These are people for whom Jesus died. So if I say I love Jesus, how can the people that he died for not be important to me? Secondly, if, if I'm striving to follow Jesus as Lord of the church, I'm going to need others in the body to help me do that by praying for me, by encouraging me, by exhorting me, by providing accountability, pressing on together with our eyes beholding Jesus for God's glory and our mutual good. So a healthy church has its eyes on the one who is the head and its arms around each other, the members of the body, for the glory of God. Number four, doing good here, Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he being Jesus, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our intercessor, our intercessor.
This is connected to his title of high priest, which we've already covered, okay? Uh, we covered that under the ascended one, okay? We, we got an H name early there because it was connected to his ascension. So I won't say too much more here because we've already covered that, except to remind ourselves of this beautiful truth. Jesus, our high priest, our intercessory high priest, is praying specifically for every individual believer on the planet. Wow. He, he knows every single one of our individual needs, even ones we are not aware of. Just a quick reminder, we've looked at this passage before, but Jesus' encounter with Peter right before his crucifixion, in Luke 22, we get a hint of something that he is praying for us about. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, See, he calls him his own old name because he's acting like Simon, or he's not acting like Peter the Rock, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan demanded to have you. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So here we see two things that we can be confident that Jesus is praying for us. Number one, that our faith will not fail that our faith will not fail. Jesus is praying for our perseverance. Has the prayer of Jesus never, ever not been answered? No. So here's another point of certainty about our salvation. Jesus is praying that our faith will not fail. Jesus' prayers are always answered in the affirmative. We are not losing our salvation. Ever. Ever. All these deconstructors who think they're so enlightened and so much smarter than the Bible and who are walking away from the church again, they never, ever belonged to Jesus. They're just like the people in John 6 who walked away from Jesus because the Father had never drawn them. It's so sad and it's so heartbreaking, especially when it hits your family. They think they're so enlightened. They think they're so intellectually honest. They think they're so on the right side of history. And they're walking right into the deepest pits of the internal inferno of hell because their brains, their minds knew the stuff. They knew it. God, please save these people. Many of you in here have got family members like this. Please save these people. And help us not to compromise when we talk to them. Help us speak the truth in love. Give us grace. Give us power. So our faith will not fail. That's one thing he's praying for us. Okay? The... I've told you this before, you know, when, when Jesus says, Simon, Satan demanded to have you. The you there is plural. So Jesus is saying, Satan demanded to have all you guys, all you disciples, all you true disciples, all you believers. They might sift you, you, all of you, like we. But, then it, but I have prayed for you. The other you is singular. I prayed for you, Peter, you, you. Personally, specifically, singularly, try to say that word, okay? I prayed for you, Peter. The same thing applies to us. He's praying for us by name. Satan wants all of us. He wants to sift us all. You know what sifting, you know what sifting does? I mean, that's what, you, you know the, the picture, the analogy there. It's sifting the, 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 the holes from the good kernels. You, you get rid of the holes. And Satan is sifting all, all the professing believers. 
sifting the American church. And yeah, the halls are falling out. The kernels have got to be strong. Another message for another day. Our faith will not fail. Our faith will not fail. Jesus is praying for that for us personally, individually. And secondly, we will strengthen. The second thing he's praying for us is that we will strengthen one another after we've repented and turned back. That that seems to indicate that yeah, there are going to be times when we fail. There are going to be times when we falter, we sin, we blow it, we we answer wrong, we 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 say things incorrectly or wrongly. We say hurtful things. Yeah, there's going to be times we blow it. But when we get back up, when we repent, get back up, we're going to encourage other people. He's praying that for us individually. He's praying for each one of you believers that you would be an encouragement to another believer in your life. Other believers, plural, in your life. He wants to use our failures to teach others. And isn't that exactly what we see with Peter in the book of Acts? In John 21, Jesus restores Peter. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know my heart. You know me. You know that I love you. Okay, then be the pastor I've called you to be. Tend my flock, lead my sheep, feed my lambs, do it. And in Acts, we see him doing it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We have an intercessor. An intercessor. A high priest who is also the holy God. The God-man. Praying for us constantly. And his prayers are always answered. In God's time. So listen, beloved Christians. Have a permanent, never-failing representative in heaven. Who is favorable to us. Who loves us who knows our every need, who has been tempted in all things, yet without sin, and who is eternally, consistently, specifically interceding for us in order to keep us secure in the hands of our Father and to move us to encourage one another. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Boy, I can't wait to see him. Can't wait to see him. Number five. Woo, one of my favorite passages here, John 8. John 8, I mean, two chapters after John 6, that's deep theology right there, two chapters after John 6. But here's another big chapter. And Jesus is having this conversation with the religious leaders. I encourage you to read the whole thing, but I'm going to pick it up at verse 54. The punchline is in 58. We're going to pick it up in 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? These guys think they're so smart. You're not even 50 years old, and you're telling us you've seen Abraham? Come on. And then Jesus said to them, wow, this, this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Mic, mic drop. Before Abraham was, I am. I have always existed. I've always been here. I created Abraham. I am Yahweh. And they knew exactly what they were saying. Why? We know that. How do we know that? Because of their response. So they picked up stones to throw at him. This was blasphemy to them. They knew what he was claiming. They knew he was claiming to be God. 
And they tried to stone him, but he hid himself and went out of the temple. So, wow. That, these Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying here. They immediately connected his statement to the burning bush account in Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. So what's Jesus saying here? Very clearly, I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh. I am, I am. I am God. And this claim demands a response. What has yours been? Last one, number six. Matthew 1.23. Man, Merry Christmas. Here we go. Matthew chapter 1. You're familiar with this. You know this story. Pick it up at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Merry Christmas. I am is with us. Got it? Yahweh is with us. Jehovah is with us. The Creator is with us. He's with us in our salvation. Behold, the Lord is my salvation. He's with us in our sanctification. He is making us by His Spirit like Himself so that we may be growing in holiness as He is holy. Never reaching that here, but getting closer to it day by day, moment by moment, until that day when we see Him, we shall be as He is. He is with us in our trials. We've all got Him. Some of us more pressing than others. If we're not in a trial situation now, we will be. One of your, our trials might be what we talked about earlier. Are you going to leave too? <laughs> God is with you in that. Emmanuel, God with us in our salvation, in our sanctification, in our trials, in our service, in our service. He's doing it through us. What did Paul say, I think, in Romans 14? I will not, I will not speak of anything except what the Lord has accomplished through me. He's doing it through you. Sunday school teachers, he's doing it through you. Nursery workers, he's caring for those little babies that are alive through you. Deacons, it's Jesus through you. He's with you. Fellow elders, He's with you. He's with us. He's with us. He's with us in our sorrows. Weeping may be for the night, but joy comes for the morning. In the morning, why? Because Emmanuel is with us. 
He's with us for all eternity, all eternity. I will never leave you nor forsake you ever, ever, ever. Not for one second, not for one blink. He's with you. He's with you always, totally, permanently, eternally. He's with you. And you know what's so sad? The lost will never, they will never know this glorious experience. They will never know it. They'll never know it. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, the unsaved will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Warren Wiersbe said, instead of enjoying God with us, the unsaved will experience God apart from us as they spend eternity separated from God. May God have mercy on them before they die. Let's pray for each other's lost family members. Let's never give up praying, church family. With God, all things are possible. With Emmanuel, all things are possible. With the Holy One of God, all things are possible. With our intercessor, all things are possible. I'm going to give the final word this Sunday to one of my most respected and loved living pastors who had the great joy at a Ligonier conference many, many years ago to stand in line with at, uh, at a, uh, Einstein Brothers Bagels, uh, picking up a bagel on the way to our early morning session that he was about to speak at. Amy had the joy of sitting down with Pat for a few minutes. And she walked to the car in tears after what she had said to her. It was a, it was a memorable moment with jo- Dr. John MacArthur. And he writes this in his commentary on Hebrews. Speaking of Jesus Christ. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled the king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world could not hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords, and the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. This is Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God. What is your response to him? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Please help us today to truly examine our heart. Concerning where we stand 
with him. The one who created us. The one who gives us every breath. The one who sustains our physical life. And the one who is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. Father, if we've never gotten serious about Jesus, may this be the day. Thank you for the great joy now of communing with your Son through the ministry of your Holy Spirit together at this precious table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.